So thanks very much for joining us on Air Brooklyn to discuss local New York City efforts to promote multiculturalism and tolerance in the face of deep hatreds and intolerance at the national level. In the aftermath of Charlottesville, we're all pressed to do more and speak out more for our brothers and sisters under threat from insidious forces within our society. Increasingly, we're defined by a culture war that implicates race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and it's no secret where Mayor de Blasio stands in this conflict. NYC is the largest funder of the arts in America after the federal government, and though there's no specific link or causality between national events like in Virginia and programs in the five boroughs, it's important to understand the general background and, of course, to have a news peg with what's happening beyond the Big Apple. So maybe we can just start off contextualizing New York's attitude about diversity and pluralism? Sure. I mean, basically in New York City we believe that um, our difference is uh, our strength. And New York City has historically been an immigrant port. It is home to so many different people, so many different languages. And we think this is essential to our identity and is one of our greatest assets. I think part of the strength of what we're seeing is that it's also not just that we have a lot of diversity, but that we engage in that diversity, right? You, everybody wants to experience, the thing that we heard over and over again is experience other cultures, their, their own, learn their own culture from other people in their culture, and also learn other cultures, and that's really one of the best mechanisms that we're really trying to support here. Okay, so what exactly is the mayor's framework for achieving greater cultural equity, inclusion, access? Uh, a combination of diversity, inclusion, and equity. We're looking at the issue of diversity in terms of who is engaged as an audience member, who is engaged as a cultural worker, who's engaged as an artist, and making sure when you're looking at long-standing historic structures like, you know, our sort of old venerable institutions that we're seeing high levels of representation, as high as we can possibly make them. As regards inclusion, we want to make sure that this representation is accompanied by voice and agency, that those who are being represented are being included, that their voice is heard and that their voices have influence. As regards to the issue of equity, this really is an issue of resource allocation. So we want to make sure that as an entity that is there largely to resource the cultural community, that while we're resourcing things like diversity and inclusion, but that we're also making sure that we resource self-determination. For instance, communities of color are represented in uh, European American institutions, but also making sure that culturally explicit organizations, organizations whose primary mission is to serve the black community or the Latino community, are resourced at increasingly high levels so that they're able to do so as robustly as humanly possible. I would add to that piece, one of the fundamental um, elements of inclusion is access, right? And that um, part of this conversation about representation is that representation often facilitates methods and processes that lead to inclusion, which allow access, right? And so a wheel, right, that all of those pieces need to be there and resourced and supported. So would you say that Create NYC really is a plan for all of the residents of New York City? 
I mean, that's our intention, you know. We, we went to such lengths to be able to secure such a high level of resident voice, um, more so than, than we've seen in any other context. And so, therefore, you look at so many of the recommendations in the uh, plan, and there are so numerous, largely because we wanted to make sure that we were representing as many residents as humanly possible. While we uh, talk about you know, a term like diversity, we recognize that diversity oftentimes uh, gets translated in people's mind into racial diversity. We think that's fantastic, but we also look at a population that's 10% people with disabilities and how invisible our disabled uh, neighbors can be, even in a term like diversity, and, and so we've gone to lengths, one, to make sure that we call it out, and two, to make sure that recommendations and strategies represented in the document also explicitly have dollars behind them. Do you have any particular example of feedback that was given as a part of the process involving the Cultural Affairs Commissioner where, let's say, um, disabled folks wanted to get more funding for a particular initiative, maybe get a little more specific about what exactly, how exactly that process worked. A big part of what we did, and, and Nadia was essential to making this happen, was making sure that we complemented the discussions that we organized with participation in discussions that other people organize of the issue of self-determination and making sure they're setting the agenda and that we are responding to them. Uh, the disability community was actually very well organized. We're really quite explicit about one, wanting to make sure that access for people with disabilities was included in the plan, but also specifically that disability arts was included in the plan. You know, that so often when you think about um, people with disabilities in the context of uh, culture that they are rather exclusively regarded as audience members, which has the unintended consequence of keeping them in kind of a passive state. They are sort of passive recipients of the work. And they wanted to make sure that they were included as cultural workers and as artists as well, so that they are regarded also as uh, people who are in an active state, who are decision makers and people engaged in self-expression. I think our audience may still be a little fuzzy on what exactly these programs are. Maybe you can just go into a little more depth about what's getting more funding, what the specific programs are. We know the general contours of it, but um, on the ground, what are the changes that actually will result from this new Create NYC plan? We worked with a team of researchers out of University of Pennsylvania, Social Impact of the Arts Project, and they literally did about two years of quantitative analysis using data from other city agencies here in New York, the NYPD, the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, Department of Education, etc. And they found that there was a high level of correlation between cultural assets, uh, the presence of cultural assets in low-income communities, and other positive social outcomes, specifically improved outcomes in education, in physical health, and in safety. So, they looked at city, literally neighborhood by neighborhood, highlighted uh, a number of neighborhoods 
that they identified as being neighborhoods that were low-income neighborhoods where uh, cultural assets were far higher than you would anticipate and that had evidence of increased social outcomes, health, safety, education. Also, they did likewise for a series of neighborhoods where the uh, cultural assets were quite low in low-income communities. And they basically said, with this in mind, you may want to look at increasing support for both kinds of neighborhoods, you know, those that have low cultural assets because you do want to see these outcomes emerge, and those that have high cultural assets because you already have an evidence base that there's an appetite present, that, that there is cultural participation there, there's artists there, there's folks, there's already momentum there. So we are literally looking at those neighborhoods right now, seeing where applicants are coming from, where organizations who apply to our, uh, for our support are coming from in those neighborhoods so that we can work with them to increase investment in those neighborhoods. So maybe pick a cultural asset in a borough, Brooklyn, Queens, wherever. Mm -hmm. what, what exactly are you referring to with cultural assets? I think intuitively I grasp that, but what do you, gen what do you mean specifically? With yeah, I mean the researchers were looking at cultural assets to be a handful of things. So one, they're looking at nonprofit cultural organizations, you know, a museum, a theater, a gallery, etc., community arts center, etc. Uh, on the other hand, they're also looking at a for-profit cultural organization, like uh, a place that plays live music that you know you, you pay money to get in, etc., or a recording studio, or you know a place that where you pay for uh, music lessons, etc. Also, the presence of artists, individual artists, it would be a cultural asset using this uh, construct. And then cultural participants, people who actually go to cultural events, people who take classes, people who attend performances, etc. And those are basically the cultural assets of the community. Are there any specific cultural assets that you've worked with, Nadia, where you would say, wow, these guys were struggling and now this program is guaranteed that they've got a bigger boost? budgetary perspective and they can survive community group or any sort of museum or I'm just sort of wondering the tangible impact. The cultural plan if you look through all the strategies you'll see that there's um, a really broad frame and the nature of the process and the nature of being in New York City means that something that is, you asked earlier, a cultural plan for all New Yorkers means that these things have to be broad. Um, so you really do start to see a structural foundation from which decisions can be made. The naming of specific sort of things isn't necessarily what you see in the plan, but that's where implementation comes in. And so, as Eddie sort of stated, the idea that one of the best mechanisms that we have are through the Borough Arts Councils. So these are organizations that receive grants from the agency and then re-grant out to smaller organizations, individual artists, local institutions, community organizations, things like that. Smaller, more struggling, have a, a lower threshold of capacity and um, can thrive from additional support. You know, if we want to look at the South Bronx, you know, there's a huge number of artists, a huge number of organizations that can have a, a relationship with their local arts council resources in different ways um, mm -hmm. that's coming directly through um, additional funding that was tied to this first year of the cultural plans with the implementation process. Yeah. Another example would be there's a, a small cohort of uh, cultural organizations that are located on a city property that's under uh, this agency's jurisdiction and this is a real blend of organizations um, 
They tend to be mid-sized to small throughout the boroughs, you know, but the South Bronx is represented, that Stuy is represented, etc. Several of them are culturally explicit organizations. Working with the city, we have been able to support their energy costs. So we're literally paying their light bill, we're paying for their heat, etc. And this is something we're really excited about being able to do because this really relieves that, that financial burden on them. You all work for the for the city, but it seems that the certain members of the city council played a large role in passing this new plan. Uh, maybe you could explain the influence of the city council majority leader Van Bramer and then also Councilman Levin, who's from my district. Ah, beautiful. Yeah. Not as well. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> nice. The City Council were instrumental in making this happen. Council Majority Leader Van Bramer and Council Member Levin passed the legislation uh, that required the development of a cultural plan. It's the first time in the history of the city that this has been done, and it was thanks to them. We worked with Majority Leader Van Bramer, engaging residents of three different public housing developments in Queens, making sure that both seniors and young people and a little cross-section of the residents of those public housing developments uh, had their voice represented in this process. Yeah, absolutely. Councilmember Levin's office uh, was involved in lots of ways, uh, both in collaborative meetings, Greenpoint, with both the growing artist community in that space, as well as religious, faith-based community in that space. Um, so you can sort of see some of the strategies we use to make sure we're reaching a wide cross-section of New Yorkers. Um, and as well, um, with, with uh, Councilmember uh, Brad Lander's office, um, looking at Gowanus, uh, looking at Arts Gowanus. Gowanus has a huge amount of artists mm. living in the area and lots of questions around industrial spaces, you know, what happens um, as you know, New York City changes and evolves, uh, where do we uh, allocate um, time and attention to figure out what to do next. Um, and so uh, his office held a whole series of meetings um, to really explore what's happening there and to provide um, feedback to the plan from directly from those artists and from other community members, both really looking, I think, strategically around what is the value of arts and culture in New York City, as well as looking locally. Geographically, is arts and culture funding in the city a zero-sum game, or did this sort of increase the overall level of funding so you didn't have to take funding from one council member's district and send it to another? How does that work? No, I mean, thanks to, to both to City Hall and the City Council, we were able to increase uh, support to arts and culture in New York City by $15 million. Um, you know, we already have the largest uh, uh, budget of any local arts funding agency in America, that $15 million increase is just unprecedented. So we're really very grateful that we're able to be ambitious and to resource it in a, in a way that where we're not playing a zero-sum game. Are there any groups that have protested the new plan because they feared that they might lose funding, or is that not part of the new reality? No, I mean, when you're able to release a plan accompanied by $15 million of additional money, that's kind of the best case scenario. I've, I've not heard any pushback. No, I was just reading the um, press release on Create NYC, and I saw that the mayor's wife, Shirley McRae, described the cultural workforce, mm -hmm. and I'm just curious who exactly that refers to. There's so many people who would say that they 
carry around a culture and they play this role of really acting or performing whatever it is and so who does that encompass would you say? I mean in that context when you refer to the cultural workforce they're basically referring we're basically referring to people who are employed in arts and culture either full-time part-time or contract work so you're either you know a full-time arts administrator in an organization or institution or you're part-time uh, doing education work etc so you're usually uh, somebody who does art and culture as part of your job. What we learned in our process is that many artists do not have their primary income through their art uh, practice. There's a very core understanding of the cultural workforce, but you know, in relationship to, for say, the jobs plan, um, there's a really broad definition of the cultural workforce, those who are producing the culture of New York City. Are there any upcoming events that are really capitalizing on this increase in funds? Will there be any highlighting of Create NYC? Is there any sort of gathering or museum night or, or concert series or something that will really use the, this branding? Where, where will your average New Yorker come across this new Create NYC? Are, are people aware of the program? The closest thing that comes to mind might be all the borough arts councils do you know, information sessions for potential applicants and obviously their resources are far greater now so I think they're going to be doing more of those with more opportunities on hand and then um, once they've actually selected the recipients of their funds, they actually do public events to honor them. If I could add, I would say that um, while I don't know the future of an event uh, of sorts, I think the process of Pre-MIC engaged an enormous amount of New Yorkers. I would say about 50% of the nearly 200,000 New Yorkers we talked to were people in the cultural field already, whether they were employees or artists or something of that nature. The other 50% were residents. They were people who may or may not even have known before that this agency existed because they didn't do a daily kind of engagement with cultural funding in New York City. So through that process, we've introduced a lot of people to this amazing resource and um, have connected them to you know, organizations or artists or people just through this engagement process. You know, we sort of talk about on the plan of cultural ecosystem, there are so many actors involved, a portion of whom have direct engagement with the agency and many who don't. Um, so I think really having a more holistic conversation, which is I think the goal of Create NYC, 97% of New Yorkers agree that arts and culture is essential in their lives. That's an amazing number, not 97% of who agrees on what, right? <laughs> so um, I think that kind of information that we have seen through the process and the deep level of engagement through online surveys, through direct contact, when we had library partnerships where we went into um, libraries in all three, uh, in all five boroughs, with all three library systems, um, to really speak to people where they are and how they experience culture in their lives. And so I think that process is probably more effective than um, having, you know, an event or something. There's already people who do that. Let them keep doing that, and you know, we'll keep working with people in the ways that they already participate in culture. So let's say I have a neighbor who's an aspiring drummer or poet or actor. What is the process for approaching the Borough Arts Council in Brooklyn, for example? 
where is that? How do you get in touch with them? How do you apply for funds? Go online and look at their website. The process is probably beginning in the fall, which is perfect timing for right now. You know, they're generally set up, the Borough Arts Council, that is to be sort of, you know, publicly responsive. There are hyperlinks to all of their, websi uh, their websites through the Department of Cultural Affairs website. We're also beginning to restart something that we've been doing throughout this process called Open Office Hours with the Commissioner. And, you know, once a season, once in the fall, once in winter, on and on, uh, we're basically going to just open up uh, the agency to the general public so they can come in and learn more about these kinds of opportunities. And that's with Commissioner Finkelpearl? Exactly, yeah. Okay. And now, is this funding given as grants, or what is it, what exactly is the structure? They're cultural grants? Right? Yes, yes. People apply directly to us, or they apply through one of the Borough Arts Councils, or they apply through any number of uh, nonprofit organizations like Creative Capital, New York Foundation for the Arts, etc., all of whom uh, we help support, and they receive grant support. Uh, largely, this is monies that help support something that engages the public uh, in terms of a production or in which artists are able to spend time producing artwork. Do you need to be able to document that you have a legal status, 501c3, something like that, or could you... Yeah, it depends. I mean, if you're applying directly to the government, you would want to have secured your 501c3 status, or you'll need to be working through a, a fiscal sponsor, um, like Fractured Atlas or New York Foundation for the Arts or whomever. Um, if you're applying to, to another nonprofit to receive support, you can simply be an individual or an unincorporated uh, uh, charity. That's uh, oftentimes how uh, individual artists get support, and it is through grants, yeah. And you would need to document that you're spending $2,000 on a new drum kit and 5000 putting on this show, and you, know, you have to detail exactly how the money will be used. And yeah, I mean, different supporters have different thresholds for, for documentation, uh, so that ranges from you know, very exacting to very general. <laughs> will this amount of money, you say that it's $15 million, will that make a difference for starving artists who are out there in, in Bushwick or the South Bronx, wherever they may be. So, we heard from a lot of artists directly throughout the process, we need more, but that doesn't, that means that means lots of things, right? You know, more resources, more professional development, more access to um, help in terms of applying for grants, right? Not everybody um, has the same, uh, you know, capacity for all of that. The additional funding that came along with this $15 million that's directly for artists I think will make a huge difference um, because as we said earlier artists struggle and I think additional funding is always a value. I don't think anyone would turn that away. I mean, not just uh, the uh, artist grants, but we're also uh, working on, with other agencies on uh, increasing the amount of affordable uh, workspace that we're creating for artists. We're also uh, working to make sure that artists know more about the process of applying for affordable housing. We're also working with uh, the housing agency on creating more affordable housing for artists. So really, when you look at you know the struggles of artists in New York City, there's such a range of challenges, but this also creates a range of opportunities from grants to affordable workspace to affordable housing to just professional development and opportunities to access other kinds of resources. Nadia, you spent time preparing maps and graphs and 
such things, uh, looking at the geographic array of who might benefit from this program, will you be going out to particular neighborhoods, you know, Bed-Stuy or wherever, and checking on the status of who's applying and who's getting the funding and, you know, going out to museums or, or workshops or whatever it is that... Just to clarify, we worked sure. with a team of consultants, so we, it was a collaborative effort in terms of data mapping, graphs, etc many people involved in that whole process. Part of what you learn from mapping is the existing conditions as you see them, but that doesn't mean you have all the information. So as you'll see in the plan, uh, makes a sort of a recommendation around continued relationships with you know, universities, with researchers, and with community members to really understand what is the landscape in all of these places. New York is a continually evolving and growing place. So you know, these are not frozen in time, these maps, right? They're tools help us make more informed decisions. An example is that we have a capacity building program that specifically focuses on a small number of low-income communities at a time. So right now it's in the South Bronx and in Central Brooklyn, Northern Manhattan, and uh, Jamaica, Queens. Part of what they do with the stakeholders, and the stakeholders, you know, are a mix of folks who run formal, you know, 501c3 nonprofit organizations, but they're also informal folks, you know, to doing things on the fly. They're individual artists. They're also just folks who uh, care about their you know, neighborhood's cultural life, folks from the church, folks from the library, folks from the small business community. And one of the things that they do is their own asset mapping, you know. Um, they're the folks who are on the ground, they're the folks who know their neighbors, and they're actually, uh, one, mapping the cultural assets the neighborhood has, but two, they're also talking to their neighbors and finding out more what they want, what they're interested in, what they're even aware of that currently exists. And the consulting team that the city employed for Create NYC, had they previously designed a cultural plan for another city? Or what, what was sort of their reference point? Had they been to New Orleans or Boston and said, oh, wow, this is how we deployed this sort of idea in another place? Hester Street Collaborative, uh, a team of planners that actually highlight resident voice in their process and participatory planning in their processes. And what they actually do is a lot of planning with nonprofits, with local elected officials, and, and with the city government, the city agencies. Their background is actually in developing plans. This is the first time they've worked on a cultural plan, but they've worked with you know, the speaker for the city council to develop a neighborhood vision for uh, East Harlem, and they've worked with uh, the, the city's office of resilience on securing a participant voice in the city's resilience planning. So their frame of reference is actually very deeply local here in New York very much informed by resident voice and they're very, very uh, plugged in to our elected officials and to the other city agencies. And, and we wanted that. I mean, there are uh, plenty of consultancies who we, we know are excellent at developing cultural plans and do that across the nation and even internationally and we like and respect that, but we specifically wanted uh, a consultant's team for whom resident voice and uh, engagement with other agencies was central to their strategy. Moving on to linguistic diversity and access, how have you ensured that enough of this funding will go to art communities that are, are beyond the English-speaking universe? Part of the funding that 
sort of in that 15 million is really around language access, um, and that is is a broad frame, right? Um, and so part of that is making sure that we're supporting grantees and organizations in you know practices that are inclusive of other languages, etc., um, in terms of their programming um, or their activities, but also making sure that how do you resource, for example, the Rural Arts Councils in having application training sessions that can be in other languages. For example, uh, Lower Manhattan Cultural Council does that um, in Chinese languages, so both as consumers of culture and producers of culture. One would assume that there were already plenty of cultural pro programs for Spanish, Chinese, Russian speakers. Are there any linguistic areas that are sort of new frontier for the department? Uzbek, Bengali, it seems like there are certain communities particularly in Queens and Brooklyn that are, are newer and they have quite a number of people who don't have much familiarity with English. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that our intention with this uh, effort is to make sure, one, that our grantees and us are able to reach those folks. Um, but also, you know, I, I think you're exactly right. Obviously, there is increasing a need for greater language access in terms of people from different countries, but we also find that we're trying to be intentionally more responsive and we're hoping to um, support our grantees at a higher level to be more responsive also of the issue of language access for people who are deaf, for instance, you know, so whether that's through American Sign Language or through CART transcription, uh, because we find that uh, it's also a community that, um, you know, is increasingly understandably desirous of engagement and access, and we think they're exactly right. I was looking at the uh, Create NYC explanation and, and mentioned the culture cabinet and that, that was sort of a fascinating way to frame who the sort of cultural leadership is in this town and I was just curious how one gets nominated to be on the uh -huh. culture cabinet. <laughs> That's actually, the culture cabinet is specifically a city agency cabinet, so we're actually taking a page from the children's cabinet, which is uh, led by Deputy Mayor Richard Bury, in which he gathers together all of the agencies who in some way touch the lives of children, so that we're able to share information, and so, you know, it's so easy when you've been a big system like the city government to work in silos. What we're doing is doing similarly for the other agencies whose work touches uh, New York City's cultural life. But you know, the low-hanging fruit in terms of other city agencies are things like the Department of Education, the Department of Parks and Recreation, etc. Uh, you know, while we are the biggest uh, local funding agency for culture, we don't support, we're not the only agency in New York City that supports culture, and we don't support it at the highest level. The Department of Education's culture budget is far larger than our entire budget, you know? Parks and Recreation have a lot to say about what gets uh, accessed in terms of cultural programming on parkland. Likewise, the Department of Transportation, if you've ever been to a public performance, chances are uh, that was through the Department of Transportation. If it was something out on the sidewalk, out on the street, etc., uh, Department of Transportation actually has an entire cultural staff that works on things like this. You know, public art, uh, Department of Transportation is involved. And so we want to make sure that we're engaging with them on a regular basis, all of these agencies, so that we all have an eye on making sure that we're complementing each other's work. So you would say that cultural affairs then bridges many different departments and agencies in the city, or is it 
pretty strictly siloed and then there are liaisons established to deal with those other departments. How exactly does that communication work? Our desire is for it to be, you know, sort of far more, you know, bridging and far more permeable. You know, I think historically we've worked really closely with other agencies but on very discrete projects, you know. So this project is going to happen in this place and we work together on that. But we want to also make sure that while we continue to do that, coordinate in terms of larger goals and larger efforts, you know, if another agency changes a policy in a way that affects artists or that affects organizations or that affects audiences, we want to make sure we're a part of that conversation so that we're able to all explore the implications of that together and so that we're able to do these things deliberately together. Any other things you all would like to add? Summing up what your expectations for the future or something you're excited about, a specific program that you're connected to? Well, I'd say for us, the, you know, one of the big top-line takeaways is we're really proud of what New York City has done to support artists and to support cultural organizations historically, and we want to keep that going and to you know, further enhance that. You know, Low-income communities, you know, diverse uh, voices, you know, the immigrant community, etc., is ever more increasingly engaged and increasingly served and increasingly financed as uh, a part of our um, effort to support arts and culture, making sure that uh, students are increasingly a part of our processes and, you know, we were talking before about the cultural workforce, you know, we're working with the City University of New York to make sure that CUNY students become increasingly a part of our workforce. You know, you look at City University of New York students, they look like New York City, you know, the, the, the majority of them are first-time college students. These are, you know, immigrants and children of immigrants. Uh, and we want to make sure that they are part of our cultural landscape as much as anybody else is. So we're supporting you know, paid internships by CUNY students. We're also piloting now professional development of cultural workers uh, being provided by CUNY so that they're able to move up into you know, better paying roles of increasing level of uh, decision-making authority. So. Last question. We've got a mayoral election coming up. If Mr. de Blasio is re-elected, will we see more cultural funding? If he's not in office anymore, is there some threat to the amount of funding that's going to create NYC and similar ventures? Well, we're very lucky in that this mayor has increased support to culture um, every year that he's been in office. Um, so while I certainly won't speak about the election, uh, we're really very grateful for that and very optimistic in terms of city support for culture uh, under this administration. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed for every upcoming administration. Okay. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much, Edwin. Much yeah. appreciated. Thank you, Nadia. It was a very interesting discussion about Create NYC. Looking forward to seeing where it goes and new artists that come out of it. Thanks for doing it.